Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm JY Ping, and on today's episode, I speak with Seven Sager Bart, who scored a 174 on his July 2018 LSAT. Bart's diagnostic score was a 148. His first and second official LSAT scores were 159 and 164, respectively. You can find him on Seven Sage by his handle, not my name. Our conversation was recorded in front of a live online audience. Since many listeners were in front of their computers or mobile devices, when Bart spoke about setting specific timing goals, I did reference Seven Sage's score conversion tool. That's a tool we built to quickly convert back and forth between raw and scaled LSAS scores. It's totally free and super helpful in figuring out how many questions you should be trying to miss given the scaled LSAS score you're targeting. You'll hear us speak more about it in the episode. Of course, we touch upon many other topics as well, and there was also a Q&A towards the end of the conversation. Without further ado, please enjoy. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Bart. Joined Seven Sage, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago now. One of my first experiences with Seven Sage was listening to these webinars of other folks and how they made it. And so I'm really excited to participate in one myself. Great. Thanks. Um, so in the forum post where we announced that you were going to do this, you had uh, prepared a brief timeline, which I thought was very helpful, uh, that illustrates the major milestones in your prep for the LSAT. Can you just walk us through that for people who are calling in or just for people who are listening only to the audio and uh, don't have the benefit of the visual aid? Yeah, I, I wanted to do this just to sort out my own madness, even for myself, you know, just to recap the whole journey. So I guess I'll start even slightly before this begins. So I, I was working in a, in a full-time career for several years and decided to, not only was that job not for me, but the industry wasn't for me. And so I left and I traveled for a few months. And towards the end of that travel, I decided I wanted to go into law. And so I took my first LSAT diagnostic, essentially in a hostel, and scored a 148. And I figured, and then I I didn't know what a 148 meant. So I looked it up and it said 50th percentile about, it's like, oh, okay, 50th percentile, I can work up from there. And so I came home a few months, like a few weeks later, and I took the same, so it's the June, whatever LSAT that's publicized. And I scored a 148 again. I was like, oh, that's weird. I saw all these questions, thought I'd do better. And so I did a bunch of research and learned that it was a fact that you couldn't improve your LSAT score more than 10 points and um, picked up a few resources. Everyone said that you needed to have the Bibles. So I got the Bibles. Um, I heard about the LSAT trainer for personal study. I got those. I read through all of these. And when I sat for the December test, I was scoring about 161 average. And I had scored a 165 at some point during my prep. And so I just believed that I would have a great day and score the 165 on test day. You know, the the one outcome that was probably less than 1% of likelihood is what I pinned my hopes on. We're talking um, after maybe three months of studying, um, you, you had improved. You already improved more than 10 points from your diagnostic of 148 to you said your high score was 165. Okay, so that's already uh, way more than uh, 10 points. So that's why, and coupled with your research online, uh, which informed you that 10 points was about how much you can improve, you thought 
this is this is it. It's my uh, maximum. I should just go and take it. Yeah. So I I sat down and took it. I was thinking I've been out of uh, out of work for almost a year at this point because I've been traveling and now studying. I'm gonna be at that point. I was 28. I was like, I need to get going. And so I sat for it while I was waiting for my score back. I did all this research and you know learned that. Not only was I unlikely to get into schools if I scored my average, but that it was highly unlikely I was going to be getting any scholarship money. And so the score came back and it was devastating. It sucked. Um, It shouldn't have sucked. I mean, it was the most likely outcome. And I took a month off. What did you get? This is your first official take. Yeah, it was the 159. Mm, Okay. Yeah. So 159. And that reflects sort of the average of where you were getting on your prep test. But um, it fell six points short of your highest prep test ever, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So I, I took a month off and did some soul searching. I found Seventh Sage and listened to, I think it was, it may have been a Counts Playables webinar. It was the first bit of, I don't know, it, it was the first um, bit of LSAT speak or resource that kind of sounded believable or at least rang true to me like i, I don't i don't bash these other resources i think the train well the lsat trainer i think is very good first of all um but like i was on blueprint and it seemed really jokey and like not a lot of work and a, just a lot of listening um and just none of them seemed like i didn't trust them even as i was doing them like i wasn't seeing the gains i wasn't getting the comprehension and so that webinar really hooked me for Seven Sage. And from that point, I did exactly what you guys recommend. I mean, I went through the core curriculum, I posted questions, I answered questions, I began writing out analyses for anything that gave me trouble. Um, I began to foolproof um, following Pacifico's method with my own twist on it, right? Um, just spacing things out. And then I got set up with um, a tutor through through Seven Sage, and she and I began working together right around us, right? So September 2017. And at that point, I was averaging probably, I was all over the 160s. My average was probably a 165, but like I had had some one, I had had a bunch of 168s and also a bunch of 160s. So there really was no consistency there. You know, I really wanted to take the December test again. So that would have been one year later, one year with Seven Sage. And he gave me some really honest, frank talk. Um, and I decided to postpone a second cycle. Um, really, really difficult. What did she say? Well, she told me that she think, thought I was capable of a 170 plus, And she told me that I need to look at how I've been scoring and that the most likely outcome is going to be you know, a 165 or lower, you know, the test day penalty is real. Are you going to take it, score 165 or lower, be pleased with that, be late in the cycle? You know, would you be happy with that outcome? Would you be able to live having already spent a year and a half working on this, um, knowing that you didn't reach your potential? And I I, I wasn't. Um, She and I had just started working together. I trusted her. And it was, I, I think it was also comforting knowing that like I was going to have a partner in this now. We decided to postpone and built out a long-term plan 
um, I began scheduling my days and my studying. We began tracking my PTs and my drilling and my time sections much more closely. I shared that some of the files in, on this. It's in the, there's a Google Drive on here. Um, I modified it, so it's not exactly what I was using. Began timing myself and filling out the timing sheets and got very regimented in my work. And then I began uh, tutoring another student, which we can speak about. Some people have messaged me with questions about that, and I'm happy to speak about that. I think, I think it's good to talk about uh, the benefits of tutoring once you reach a certain point. And then I was ready for June, and, and I felt ready. I was averaging in the 170s. I had had a consistent PT cycle going for months at that point. And the one thing my tutor said was try to score above a 160 and don't get fixated on the score and don't track your misses throughout the test. And this is a, a dry run very early in the cycle. And I wasn't able to listen to any of it. Um, as much as I tried, you know, I was focused on the test. I was focused on every question that I was getting wrong, spending too much time. My skipping strategy fell apart. Um, you know, one thing I'll talk about later on is that I got used to making mistakes and I just got really good at preventing them from escalating, right? So minimizing errors. It's all like, a lot like what you do in golf. But um, so uh, like my 174 had errors and my 164 had errors, but the difference was in my, how, how I responded to those. And so I got the 164 back and that was disclosed. and. Um, I was already signed up for July and I was disappointed, but I knew that it was early in the cycle. And after reviewing the disclosed test, I knew that those questions I missed, it was a result of process and not cognitive ability. I understood the questions as soon as I saw them. Um, it was testing nerves and its effect on my process overall. And I had been doing it for so long at that point as I think I even started caring a little bit less. And there's something to that, right? Like you put so much pressure on yourself. And pressure can be good if it's harnessed well, but it, it wasn't for the 164. And so I didn't change anything about my process in the eight weeks or six weeks, whatever it was, until the, the July take. I BR'd the crap out of that 164. I mean, really, really thoroughly. More, and I had a very thorough BR process. And I mean, it was twice as rigorous for that 164. I wanted to know that I owned that that test um, going into the one, the July test. and. I went in on July and I was able to, to do what I'd spoken to my tour about. Just trust my process. Don't track questions, you know, track your approach to the test. You know, I knew what I wanted to do in terms of timing, in terms of response to my mistakes. And I was able to do that. And I knew I did well, but I didn't realize I did that well. I mean, basically what I saw, my average was like a 172 at that time, I think, or might have even been slightly lower. We can talk about process in more detail during this time, but essentially it meant that it allowed me to get all the questions I knew right. And then I also probably got a little lucky and got one or two questions right also. So what I what occurred on the 174 was what I was hoping to occur way back in December of 2016 was that I actually did score the upper threshold of my ability. And that was that was possible because of the all of the processes and this the work I had put in to recognize patterns on this test and manage my own anxiety and mindset on the test. So that's, that's where I stand. Um, that's, that's my story. And, you know, whatever questions anyone has or JY, if you want me to fill in any blanks, I don't know if I missed any gaping parts of our 
escaping parts of this, but we can get right into it. Yeah, no, for sure. Let me just, uh, okay, so this is now your third take, 174, uh, and this is July 2018, which is a year and seven months after your first take uh, back in December of 2016. I think you're totally right uh, in saying that a bit of that was luck. If you're averaging 172 and you get a 174, then yeah, I think what happened was everything went your way um, in terms of the stuff you're used to doing, the stuff that you know you can handle, all that went your way, and you got a little bit lucky. But, you know, that's fine. That luck is a real factor that comes in on test day. And unfortunately, most people experience luck swinging the other way. Um, but that's great. I mean, look, on the low end, I suppose you would have just gotten your test day average of uh, prep test average of a 172, uh, which I'm sure you would have been super stoked about anyway. I would have been thrilled. I was expecting a, a 170 on the test. And it definitely, I guess luck is the best word for it. But there are things that you can do to bring luck into your favor, I suppose. You know, there there are approaches to questions and overall strategies, um, you know, timing, for example, and skipping that can, they can bring those in your favor. Yeah, I think we should just, I should clarify rather what, what I mean by luck. I mean, like, look, on any, let's just say LR section, on any LR section, there's going to be at least one question where you're down to two answer choices. And if you're honest with yourself, you have no, re you have no idea why you're picking B over C. Right. If you're honest with yourself, like all you can say is under time conditions, I had to make a decision. My gut told me it was B. I don't have very well thought out reasons why it's B, but I just liked it slightly better than C. Or it's even worse than that. It's just, I don't know. I truly don't know. I just had to pick something. Right. So that's what I mean by luck stuff that you cannot reliably reproduce. Right. Versus like some of the easier LR questions. Like, no, I know I can tell you exactly. Even under time conditions, I can tell you why I chose B and not C. So that's the stuff, the, the former kind of decisions that's luck right like if you get it right well you just kind of got lucky right can you count on that to happen again on the next prep test well not reliably right you cannot so that's luck you know people even people who score like in uh, into the 170s you're not you're not always looking at a perfect lr section i mean i'm just picking on lr for no particular reason right but um, you, you get you get the point. It's like whatever question you're talking about, it's that that's what luck means. Yeah, and even even if it's just having gotten so good at understanding, I mean, there are answer choices that repeat themselves again and again and again. And you know, if you're able to eliminate three of them and you're guessing one out of two, well, yeah, that's luck. You might have a fifty fifty chance, but like someone who's not able to recognize those cookie cutter answer choices might only have a twenty percent chance of getting it right. That's right. So it's not, it's not all luck. It is a lot of it is also your skills. Um, your skills increase uh, your odds. Um, but I, I really want to focus on um, what you mean by process. And let me bring it back to what your tutor said to you before the June test, um, where you had already been prep testing above 170. She said to you to just try to get a 160 and don't think about, don't keep track of the right and wrong ones. And um, she said, What's the last thing she said? Uh, focus on the process. Yeah, don't track the, you know, don't get fixated on questions. Don't try to keep count of, oh, I've missed four in this section, so I can only miss two in the next section, that sort of deal, that sort of ticky-tacky approach to the LSAT. Okay, and the 
10 point difference between June and July, the 164 and the 174, you're saying it really was just a process difference. Like you actually just followed your process on the July test that you have been uh, honing and cultivating and developing and practicing. And it just all, you just did it on the July test versus on the June test, something went astray. Yeah, I'm so happy we're talking about this early on because what the last thing I want is for people to think that I have some secret formula to jump 10 real points in six weeks between <laughs> an LSAT. Um, I, I do not. It looks like we've lost half our audience just now. <laughs> the difference between June and July was all mindset and all approach and not, um, I didn't get smarter. If I got better, I got better at the LSAT, but it wasn't through learning. I'm, I don't quite have, you, you know what I'm trying to say, JY, right? Is that it was, it's not that I got better at necessarily recognizing a certain cookie cutter. It's that I got better at skipping when I didn't recognize it immediately because I knew I would catch it on the second round. Like that was never a question like, oh, this is question three. And I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I know like 99% chance I'm going to get this in 35 seconds if I come back to it. So I, you know, on that July test. Yeah, I, I think I skipped a question between one and five on both LR sections, but I got them both right because I just was confident in myself to come to skip in 30 seconds and come back and get it in another 30 seconds versus on that June test, I was probably spending a minute and a half with it on the first round. So that's, that's what you mean by process. Um, when you say you did, it's not that you got better at the LSAT. I think what you're, I mean, correct me if, uh, if my understanding is not right. I think what you're saying is like, consider again, logical reasoning. There are three kind of major, um, categories of logic that gets tested. You have your, uh, formal logic, Right, your conditional logic, you have your uh, scientific reasoning, that's all the causation, correlation, phenomenal hypothesis stuff. And then the third um, major category is just analogy, analogical thinking. So you're saying it's not that you just got better at like manipulating formal logic symbols in the in the six weeks. Right. So I had, once we started videotaping and I could see what I was doing on the test, that was when we were really able to start talking about building processes for me and the way I took the test. And one of those processes was finishing my first round in LR in less than 30 minutes and no more than five. Um, and that wasn't always the process, right? Like there are different strategies for doing well in the 160s than there are for doing in the 170s. But going to the June test, June 2018, that was my process. Finish the first round in less than 30 minutes skip no more than, and I don't get to return to more than five questions. And I didn't do that. You know, I, I had to skip more than five, which means, it, and I didn't finish in 30 minutes. So my process wasn't there. Ideally, I don't want to get too into the weeds, but essentially my approach to the LSAT, my, my strategies for minimizing the damage of mistakes, because there, will, there are always mistakes. When I, whenever I took an LSAT, I didn't implement them on the June test because I let the test day nerves get to me. Mm. Uh, do get into the weeds. I think, I think that's the, uh, that, that'll be really interesting and, uh, we'll, we'll all have like a much clearer understanding of what's going on. Um, let me, let me see if I understand. Okay. So if I'm, 
here's one interpretation of maybe what you're saying. And, and again, you let me know if that's right or if you meant something different. Um, one way in which it, typically a process failure tanks your performance is where, you, like you said, you have to recognize that you are going to miss questions, right? Like when a new prep test is released and I take it fresh, timed, I tell myself, and for real, I, I act, this is actually what I tell myself, I will be totally happy if I go minus two on this LR section, right? That that just that's like just recognizing that look, there are just going to be some crazy difficult curve breaker questions there, right? So, and I'm okay if I don't do those questions because it's not necessary. Nobody's gunning for a 180, right? So, you're most people. I feel like even like the most serious aggressive gunners are just gunning for like a 170. So, okay, that gives you a set of questions you get to miss like usually it's around 10 so you do get to miss some questions on some sections but the problem is if you take a look at a question and it should be a question that you should be missing which takes probably 30 to 50 seconds to figure out that this is like a really tough question and you should just miss it so on the one hand if you're process oriented you know you actually follow through the cost to you is let's say 60 seconds in time okay to read it and the cost to you is 60 seconds in time and uh, minus one point, right, on this. But if you don't follow the process, you might just fall into the rabbit hole of attempting to do this question that really you, you should be skipping. You end up spending something like 150 seconds, that's over two minutes, um, on the question, yet you still miss it anyway. Um, so then that means that's an extra 90 seconds that uh, you've, you've basically borrowed from other questions to dump into this question, which you're going to miss anyway. So that that consequently makes the other questions tougher, right? That's That I feel like is a pretty common thing that people do um, when they're not uh, sort of, when they don't have kind of like a good process going for them. Um, is that, does that capture like some of what you're saying or most of what you're saying or? Yeah, like other it stuff? captures it very well. And that's, that's what my focus had been for several months, for, for probably two months leading up to June, it was about getting that process nailed down. And then it, it failed me in June. But what you're saying, it, it's like, we should do that, right? So you hit question one on the test. It should be easy. I know it should be easy, but my mind is blanking because I'm terrified of the test and all the ramifications of that of the score. And it's already not going well on question one. On June, I sunk a minute and a half into it. I don't really remember question one, but this will illuminate. Um, I sunk a minute and a half into it and then moving on to question two without answering question one. And now it's not like that bad approach stopped after question one. It remains in question two and onward. Um, and so I'm spending time unwisely um, throughout the section, whereas on July, if that question won, I'm blanking and it's the first question. I skip after 30 seconds and I am able to build a rhythm because of that. And I'm able to come back to question one and answer it confidently in a second round. And that was almost always the case. My accuracy in the second round, it it's so crazy. Like just simply giving yourself some space between the first round and the second round, second round did wonders for me. Um, I almost never, you know, not, I won't say almost never missed a question in the second round. I definitely did. Like there were curve breakers that I missed, but I knew 
when I was skipping a question one through 10 in the first round, I knew I was going to get that in the second round. It was like money in the bank. And so I spent my time wisely on that July test, which makes the whole section easier for you as, as you were describing. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I see that. Um, okay. So first I, um, I feel that way too about some questions for whatever reason, uh, the way you're reading it the first time around, just, you're just not reading it right. It's just not the, the, the dots aren't connecting. And well, I mean, what are you going to do? You have one option of just stay there, read it again and again and again, and, and hope that uh, the dots do connect. But odds of that are pretty low because whatever like sort of psychological mismatching that's happening, you know, it's going to, it's, it's happening right now. So it's like it, there's a good chance it's going to continue to happen right now versus if you make the alternate call of just like cut your losses and just move on and uh, come back later at the end of the section if you have time it gives your mind some space to just reset it gives your mind some space i don't I honestly have no idea what's actually happening psychologically but what it feels like is happening is um that your mind is processing it just in the background while you're working on other questions and then when you come back to it afresh, it's like, oh, yeah, right there. That's very clear what's going on. This is the right answer choice. It, it didn't take that long, right? So um, that, I, I totally feel that also just anecdotally as a way to handle some, some of the, these uh, questions that for whatever reason just don't click on round one. Yeah, it does feel that way. And another thing I think that's at play is if you – like I, I was ready for the June 2018 test despite a major underperformance. Like because I was averaging minus two in each LR section going into the June test, if something didn't go right in an LR question, and I recognized that early on, the chances of it not going right in the second attempt was just very, very low, right? So like when you're only missing two in an LR section, things almost always go, go right. And so I think that's part of it too. Like you swung and missed, um, you got to give yourself a chance to take another, like step out of the batter's box and settle yourself and come back in. You know, you're probably going to hit it that second time. Sorry with the sports analogies. It's, I always revert to them. The LSAT just reminds me so much of it between preparation and execution. I'm actually curious about the golf analogy you had referenced earlier. I know almost nothing about golf. You, you said something about golf being a way to... What did you say? Minimize errors was what was important in golf? Maybe this doesn't apply, but I took a golf class in college and I'm an awful, just offensively bad golfer. But the, the professor said something like, you know, golf is about like you're not a PGA Tour champ. So golf is going to be about minimizing your errors. So like if you're on a par three course, right, that means you have if you make the if you get your golf ball into the hole in three shots then you get a zero. And ideally, you get on the green in one shot. But if you don't, what you don't want to do is then, like you're three feet off the green, what you don't want to do is make another bad shot there and fire it off all the way across the green, right? And then you're just going back and forth over the green all afternoon, right? So you're not going to get in on three shots because you missed the green. So just make this next shot manageable, right? And, and don't amplify your mistakes any more than you have to yeah so take take your losses yeah take your losses that's a better way of saying it um i'm, I'm curious how did you guys uh how did you and your tutor 
um, and I do later, I do want to talk about like, uh, <laughs> when you started to uh, tutor others as well. But for, for now, I just, I'm curious, how did you and your tutor come up with, um, the specific goals in your process? I think you mentioned, um, on LR, you get to skip five questions on round one and round one must happen, must end before 30 minutes, right? So meaning you, you got to get to question 25 before the clock hits 30 and you got to skip no more than five questions. Was that like, how did, how did you guys arrive at those seemingly arbitrary numbers? The first thing we did was start videotaping my time sections or, or PTs. Um, and then I would fill out a timing sheet, which I'm happy to share with everyone. Um, I don't know. There might only be one more. There's only a few more tests where this timing sheet might be helpful. But And the timing sheet would show me how much time I spent on each question, whether I got it right in the first round or skipped it or got it wrong. And the same for the second round if I came to it. And so it, it puts onto paper your performance for the test. Then we BR'd out loud together those time sections with the timing sheet in front of us so that my reasoning was very clear. And, and what that did was it, it allowed, like, I didn't know how to analyze an LSAT take at that point. She did. She had been through this. Um, and so we were able to talk about what it meant that I was finishing a section without any time for a second round, that a second round is very valuable because of the weird thing about revisiting a question and it being easier the second time, like we discussed. And because of that, you want to have a second round. We knew that we wanted to have some time left over to go back to answer questions. And the question then becomes is how much time do you need? And, you know, I never, I never liked the, the 10 and 10 or 25 and 25 because I think some questions do warrant um, more time than others. And I just didn't like staring at the clock all through the section. Um, I thought that was just one more. That always felt like one extra burden on me that if I wasn't matching during the section, like it would just stress me out. But when we first started working, we were trying to go minus five in each LR section. And one of the things she told me was, you know, you're trying to score a 180. Stop trying to score a 180. Like, stop even trying to score a 170. You have to get to like 165 or 168 consistently before you can start using strategies for the 170 or above. Right. And, and they look differently at each point. So when I was trying to get to the 165, 168 consistently, I mean, what we wanted, we wanted five minutes in the second round for LR because it's what I felt I needed to look at the section and return to questions without feeling unduly pressured and pressed for time. So just to make sure everyone's um, on board here. Your tutor said for you to target uh, getting a negative five on each LR section, which means cumulatively targeting minus 10 on just the LR, right? So as, as a lot of people here knows, that already puts you at just that threshold of 170. And that's fine because even though your ultimate goal was to get to 170, you don't want to confuse your ultimate goal with your current goal, right? Your current goal being just do a few points better than what you're like consistently do a few points better than what your last PT was. So right, so right, right now right. In, in this process, your current goal is somewhere around the 165. Is that right? Yeah. Like I was like, I was scoring all throughout the 160s and what we wanted to get was a consistent 165. 
I see. Okay. So let me, uh, a lot of people here maybe don't know about this, but just once you log into the seven stage on your dashboard, you scroll down the bottom, there's this LSAS score conversion table, which uh, very neatly shows you how, how you can go about strategizing. So if you, I put get a 165 scale score on the 25 most recent PTs, it shows you that you're looking at 50% chance of minus 17, the average is minus 18.68, so minus 19, whatever. So basically this means you get to miss 19 questions to achieve a 165 scaled score. So if you're minusing 19 questions, you're allotting 10 of those to LR, you still have nine questions to play with for RC and LG. Okay, so I just wanna make sure uh, that that was, it was clear how, cause like, you know, people listening are, you know, you guys really should be thinking like, well, where am I on this? Right on the where am I on my like whatever your ultimate LSAS score goals are, you should also be doing what Bart and his tutor are talking about. Like, but at this moment, you're just trying to get a few points better than your last PT, and you're trying to make that those few points uh, consistently better. Right, so you you figure out what that means. You figure out what the raw score uh, you're targeting is. That way, you can do this allotment like Bart's doing uh, five five misses to each LR, right? Okay, sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's great. That's, um, yeah, so it's about finding consistently, consistency first. And look, I my LSAT journey was a year and seven months, right? And so at this point, I am delaying a cycle and we're looking at a marathon, not a sprint. And that was my experience for the LSAT. That's what I tend to recommend, but, you know, to each his own. Anyway, when I first started working my, with my tutor, I was scoring all throughout the 160s and I needed to find some consistency. And so we decided, you know, if you miss five per section about, you know, you're in that 165 range. So um, we said, okay, we're gonna allow minus five for each LR section. That means, you know, about, that means I'm, I'm gonna be skipping five questions. Part of that five minute allotment at the end of the section for a second round was, well, I can, spend a minute on each question. So it, it worked out well there. And then part of that also was getting used to choosing questions to miss. And this was a really difficult concept to employ and get get comfortable with, right? So seeing a question and saying, nope, um, I'm not even going to give a true attempt to this question. I've read the stimulus. Maybe I haven't even read the answer choices. If it's a, a you know, some of those stimuli at the end of a section, you know, I just don't even understand what's going on. I've skipped four and I'm just deciding I'm not even going to return to this one, right? Um, that meant that I put a big X on that question um, and now I can return in to the four questions I skipped and maybe one other that I want to double check, right? And so this was all about getting comfortable and calibrating my own ability to recognize when things were going wrong and how wrong they were going. So there's a big difference between, you know, skipping a, like when I sat for the LSAT in June, I was able to tell the difference between a question I was skipping because I just needed to see it again. And it was as good as gotten right. And a question that I really might miss, because this is definitely one of the most difficult questions on the section. And that's really, that it's a, it was a really difficult skill for me to develop. It took a long time because 
it's not always easy. Like difficult questions can be quite nuanced and sometimes curve breakers seem a lot like softballs. And so we agreed on that process, skip five, return to five and finish the first section in less than 30 minutes. And then we tracked my progress. And those BR calls were tough. Like she, she didn't pull any punches and that worked for, for my, that worked for, for my personality. Like I, I needed to hear that. I needed to be told when I was screwing up, when I was being too stubborn, like, no, you don't get to blame the LSAT writers. Um, no, this question's not like, you don't actually understand this. Okay. You got this right, but I don't like your reasoning for getting it right. Um, your thinking's convoluted here. Like it was, it was tough. She really put the fire to me. And that was a big, that was a big part of my improvement also. And as I began to consistently get that, you know, the process implemented, right? So not just missing five, maybe I was consistently missing three, but the process was there, right? So um, I may have only been missing three, but I was always only returning to five and I was always getting it down under my first round in less than 30 minutes. Then we, then we began to, you know, pull back that number and try to finish a little bit faster. And at that, finish the first round a little bit faster, aiming for like 28 minutes. And at that point, you bring in a new set of strategies, things that you shouldn't probably shouldn't be doing when you're trying to score 165. And that's things like um, not reading all the answer choices or getting really, really quick at cookie cutter questions. Not saying you shouldn't be studying cookie cutters early on. You definitely should. But, you know, we were, I was spending an inordinate amount of time just sitting with questions and trying to see if it fit a repeating mold. And a lot of times we think about cookie cutter questions as being easy questions. And that's wasn't, that's wasn't really my experience. Um, you can see a cookie cutter mold that a cookie cutter question that's very simple, you can see the same mold applied to a to a five-star breaker question with a few extra ribbons and bows on it to confuse you. And so whenever I would take a time section or a PT, I would print out questions that I either got wrong in BR or just had a really difficult time with. And I had a, a binder, a three-ring binder, and I put them all in there. And I made little notes for each question with the cookie cutter mold. And I had little maxims for what mold it was. And I put stickies over top of it. And I even did that for like really difficult, sufficient assumption questions, just to train so that I could try to envision the, the conditional links in my head without writing anything down. Even though I'd seen it a bunch, those can still be difficult to do if you haven't seen the question in a few months. And I went through those all the time. Like, what did they do here? They made it, they made a decision with too little information, something like that, or, um, you know, could have done this. So they definitely did this. Right. Um, and they're not all flaws either. That was, that was very important. And I did the same thing for logic games. Also, I think it's a really important part of foolproofing is finding those patterns. I think that's why logic games is the most improvable section because the patterns are most readily visible. Yeah. I'm uh, looking at the uh, the chat room, and we're getting some questions related. Uh, so the the one that I see that is very related to what we're talking about comes from Diana, and 
she says, at what point of uh, what, what point did you decide to get a tutor? What inspired you to get one? Um, yeah, how did that happen? Early on in my prep with Seven Sage, I had been answering a bunch of questions, and and I was asked to come on as a what are we called? This is this reflects really badly on me. Mentor, right? That's the right. We used to have that tag. Now you guys just have these uh, shiny little stars. Ah, uh, okay. Throwback. Um, and so sometimes, you know, as a mentor, you, you get some added perks. You get to work with JY a little bit. And I worked with him for, I think, maybe two weeks or so. Like I recorded myself and he used the recordings for the core curriculum. And then I got my feedback through his critiques in the video. And so he knew where I was aiming for and that I was kind of floundering around the 160s. And he knew someone who had taken the LSAT, was not dead set on going to law school. She was considering another graduate program and uh, she wanted to stay sharp. He knew about her and, and he put us in touch. And JY has, has sent some folks my way that way, knowing that like, I think you, you sent someone recently, JY. Um, so I'm not in a, I'm not an official tutor. Um, and I'm not, my schedule is not quite steady enough to take that on as a full-time gig. It's why I'm not listed on the seven stage approved tutors, but um, this community is small and um, like I could p put people in touch with folks. I can help to some degree. Um, there is a, a list of seven stage approved tutors. I've seen that list. Um, anyone would be lucky to work with any of those folks. Um, and if you're not sure, send me a message, send, send any mentor message. Um, this it really is a community. I've told, I told JY this before that, you know, what really differentiates seven stage is, you know, they've, they've really created a positive forum. Like people are engaged. There's a, there's a one plus one equals three effect going on here, right? Where we've got the curriculum and that's great. But then we've also got all these folks engaging in it together and coming up with new resources and becoming tutors. And so this is a long answer to a simple question, but just uh, engage with the community. And, you know, my tutor was pro bono. Um, she never charged me a dime. And um, I didn't charge either of the two students I've worked with a dime. And, and not all tutors do that. But, um, you know, I have a little bit of a pay it forward chip on my shoulder because uh, my tutor didn't charge me anything. So do not underestimate this community. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And I think, you know, I obviously can't put everyone in touch with uh, someone they can work with. But I think just a really good way to do it is just to be active on the forum um, you can message people uh, whose comments and replies you find to be particularly helpful, um, ask if they want to study together. Uh, generally, I, I tend to, I, I like to have the relationships be like structured in, in a way where it's just clear who is teaching whom. Like, you know, you want to find someone who's doing better than you so that they can teach you. Um, and then it's the same when you you decide to turn it around and pay it forward. You want to find someone who's not doing as well as you, so that you can teach, uh, so that you can teach them. So you can do that on the forums. We actually there is actually a study buddy uh, component. I'm not sure how uh, popular that is, but you know there is a study buddy tool that you can try to use to find people to uh, work with. But um, the uh, um, w with your tutor. Um, she also was uh, someone. Uh, she, I guess, she's she's before. She's a couple years before you on Seven Sage, and um, same same deal. You know, she sent in the the uh, when I was first putting together these um, live commentary videos. Uh, she had sent in her videos, and I had done the commentaries 
uh, for her as well. So you guys that are listening, uh, if you go through the curriculum, you'll be able to see her videos and my commentary overlaid and also Bart's videos with my commentary uh, overlaid uh, on top. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really what you, what you make of it. There are just so many people on the, um, in the community that you can reach out to. I, th- I think it's, I've, I've said this so many times, but it, w- one of the really great ways to study and make sure you understand the concept clearly is by putting yourself in a position where you have to explain it to someone else. Uh, you know, that's, that's a very different feeling. You don't, you can't cut corners. Uh, you don't get to just be lazy with yourself and be like, yeah, 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 I understand it. Okay, do you really, though, because you have to explain it to the other person who doesn't understand it, right? And you can just kind of tell from their reaction to you whether you've done a good job explaining. Um, yeah, one quick point on that is just, you know, don't be afraid to look like a fool. For most people, you know, being a fool is a necessary prelude to being a king, right? Something like that. You know, you have to step out of your comfort zone. Say you disagree with someone or ask them to clarify it. Um, you really will get out what you put in. Um, if you go back far enough, you'll see all of my dozens and dozens and dozens of comments on these questions, really wrestling with it. The question writers are very intelligent and their reasoning, um, and approach is, is nuanced and and it's just a deep rabbit hole once you really start wrestling with this stuff. So yeah, I, I definitely encourage that. So I have a interesting question here from someone that's asking you to discuss your initial score jump. From 148 to 159, we focused most of the conversation on the sort of the uh, 60s into 70s jump. But yeah, how did you go from your initial diagnostic 148 to 159, which also happened pretty quick? That was uh, just in three months that happened. How did I make that jump? I I mean, my studying habits were were garbage. Um, I think it was really just exposure to the test. Under like when I took my diagnostic, I didn't know what a sufficient assumption was. I didn't know what a necessary assumption was like I had no chance at this test I saw my first logic game and (laughs) it might as well have been Sanskrit I mean I had done puzzles before but I had I had no idea how to diagram it so I think that was really just an exposure jump for the most part yeah low low hanging fruit probably right because if your initial cold diagnostic is at the 50th percentile the the low hanging fruit allows you to, to just you know once you feel like oh okay sufficient assumptions are not the same thing as necessary assumptions I think that alone will get you a few points once you start figuring out like oh okay so generally speaking two types of games sequencing game versus grouping games you see some standard game board setups well all of a sudden you're getting like you know twelve question from twelve questions right in logic games to like I don't know, eighteen questions right in logic games right so there are just uh yeah so those easy those those early points um relatively speaking are far easier to gain um than those later points the higher and higher you climb on the scale the harder the next point is to to get so consequently you also do have to adjust your um how you study for the test if you want to keep um gaining gaining those points yeah the the same approaches that work to get you from a 148 to, you know, the upper 150s will not get you to the upper 160s. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'll open it up now just for you guys to ask whatever questions you guys have. Uh, type type it into the chat, and um, I'll I guess I'll I'll try to pick ones that I think are well formed or <laughs> potentially interesting. 
Dee had asked a question about uh, how did you reuse your old tests?、Um, how did you take into account score inflation?、Mm-hmm. I never included retakes in my PT average,、um, and I used them most heavily when I began working with my tutor, and we were trying to introduce these processes for the first time. So. The bulk of my retakes were used when I was trying to get used to learning how to skip, trying to get used to timing, trying to get used to you know not diagramming in the first round or something along those lines. And so I didn't care much about the scores at that point. And my tutor made a point every single time to remind me that those scores didn't really matter. It was just about getting used to skipping, which I think was a really great way to do it because skipping is hard to do. It's counterintuitive. And I'm stubborn as heck,、um, and it made it a little bit easier. Skipping, having practicing it on、um, questions I'd see, seen before first, and then I used them again later on in RC,、um, in as timed passages, to do the same thing. I implemented timing strategies on RC much later than I had in LR,、um, and. I use the retakes in the same way for RC. There's great value in them, right? I mean, I was studying over the course of two years,、um, so I had to economize more than maybe others do.、Um, it still might be interesting, even if you have the luxury of more fresh PTs to use retakes for to practice skipping. But also, you know, I hadn't BR'd those old takes properly. I, I hadn't reviewed them, and so there was a lot to learn from them. You know, there were a lot of questions that I missed twice in those retakes, so I'm happy I took advantage of them. Yeah, yeah, retakes are、uh, very helpful, especially when you, I guess, for the old tests that you've seen before, you can like, like you said, you can pull them apart,、uh, make them into the, make them into、uh, drill material, or you could just retake the sections. Don't pay any attention to the score, just to practice, like, like you said, practice the habit of learning to recognize when a question is difficult and.、Um, Practicing, intentionally practicing, you know, receiving the signal and then acting upon it in the way that you want to, which is, in other words, not like your default reaction. Your default reaction being just being stubborn and like, no, I can get it. I'm just down to two answers. Come on, like if I just read the stimulus like five more times, I'm sure I'll be able to get it, right? <laughs> It's like your default. Yeah. So you just gotta be like, no, look, I've, I, I know what I'm supposed to do here. Right, like when when you know when I get these flags that this is a difficult question, I'm supposed to just move on. So it's、uh, it's habit. Yeah, it's really about retraining yourself. It's a good way of putting it. Yeah.、Um, persevere to the end.、Uh, Pers, that's a good name. Can you come online? Can I'm gonna see if I can unmute you. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Thank you so much for doing this, Joe. Thanks for putting together such an amazing course. I、oh, find it really, really helpful. It's my pleasure.、Uh, all the thanks goes to Bart for、uh, yeah, for,、no. yeah, for being here. <laughs> of course, yes.、Um, so I was curious about how Bart transitioned from the CC to drills. Whether he did drills by question type, how many per day,、um, whether he started those timed or not, and then how he finally felt confident enough to do just PTs. Yeah, it was. I was filled with trepidation moving into the PT phase, right? Because you go through the core curriculum and you feel like you've learned all this, but then you're you're a little nervous to see where you、um, pan out. But I, when I finished the core curriculum, I actually didn't go back to. I did like two months of logic games, full proofing. That was a 
and that's how I came into JY. Um, he took some mercy on me because I was uh, hard fought games in, in logic games. Um, but then once I felt like I had gotten to a, a decent place in logic games, I, I think I was like minus five or four consistently. That was after about two months. I returned to LR and I don't think I did that much drilling before taking my first PT. And then I took that PT and I started my first PT cycle, right? So I took the PT, I BR'd the whole thing, I graded it, I posted questions in the forum and on the question explanations, posted my own explanations. And then, you know, if I missed a bunch of weakening questions, I would drill those. And I kept my drill sets pretty small. Like I might drill two, two or three sets of five in a day and then BR those and treat those the same way as if they were a question I'd seen on a PT. So posting explanations and questions to the forum and the question explanations. And I would drill my problem areas, maybe do a time section, um, and then go back to PTing. Does that answer your question? Yes, yes, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. No problem. Iqbal wants you to uh, speak more to the Contra contrasting strategies to, uh, between 170 and 160. What what did you? I think what you were what you had said was uh, initially the goal was just to tighten the variance down so that you're always getting around a 165. You did not have this big spread where sometimes you get a 168, sometimes you get a 162, right? So first step, just tighten that variance down, and then like I mean, I suppose at some point you guys you guys changed the target so that you could more consistently hit that 170. Mm -hmm, exactly. So Titan's a good word because it, you know, I was taking that test when I was aiming for a, a consistent 165. I was being pretty darn conservative in the way I took that test. You know, I read every single answer choice. Um, and I had to at that point because I didn't know which question was hard and which question wasn't. You know, it... it that's a, it sounds simple. That's a difficult skill to learn. And so that's what that phase was about. And I was, you know, if I was choosing questions to miss even at that point, right? Like I didn't say this before, but one thing my tutor made me do at that point was even like choose two to miss, like, like you're actually going to miss these two. You're not going to return to them. And so you've got three questions to look at, right? And so maybe you get one of those three that you return to correct, right? And then you've missed four in the section, or maybe you missed five because you had an overconfidence error, right? So, and then as the consistency showed up, you know, now I'm choosing to miss none. And then I'm aiming to do the section in less than 29 minutes, less than 28 minutes. Then, you know, I'm, I'm trusting myself to no longer read the answer choices if I'm, you know, very confident that I found the right one. So you basically become more and more aggressive within the section. You can even start hunting for the correct answer choice. So for example, on a parallel flaw question, you know, I identify it pretty quickly as let's just do parallel question. So A implies B. Well, I'm just scanning the answer choices looking for that A implies B. And I, I see 
A is A sum. No, I don't want a sum statement. Most, no, I don't want a most statement. And then when I think I found an answer choice that says it, I'll actually read that entire answer choice. And if it says it, then I know I've got my correct answer and I just move on. And so it's really the, the change in strategies is just moving more and more to an aggressive approach because you've developed the underlying skills to trust yourself to do that. Yeah, I, I think that's, I just, I don't, I mean, I feel like that is necessary if you're targeting a raw score of like zero minus zero to minus two on the LR. I don't, I just don't think you can seriously consider each and every word written in the section and still have enough time to get through everything. You, you kind of just have to be choosy about what you're going to spend your time and attention on. So that's where um, that judgment becomes really important. And uh, it's, it's not easy. You know, some, some questions, especially like some, you know, hopefully like overconfidence errors are the first things you get over. Overconfidence errors are those questions where you're like, nailed it, definitely got that one. And then you review and you realize, later you realize, oh, actually you, you, what you did was you fell for a trap so completely and thoroughly that you, you left the question thinking you got it right. So it's not always easy to, um, to, to figure out what's difficult. No. And it takes a lot of, it took me a lot of work to know what I needed to read and what I didn't need to read, which is why it's not a, not a, a strategy for 160, mid to low 160s or below. Yeah, I think at that point, you are still uh, working on a lot of the uh, kind of the fundamental logical skills. Like if, if, if your score is in sort of like high 150s, low 160s, there's a lot of um, gains to be had in, in uh, simply just understanding better the logic of the arguments and where, you know, where the argument made an assumption, why the assumption wasn't right, how can you manipulate the assumption uh, to do the thing the question stem wants you to do, whether it's to affirm the assumption for like, you know, strengthening class questions or uh, to weaken the, to, to deny the assumption for like weakening um, questions. So there's, there's a lot there. Yeah, and just identifying conclusion and support, like that's how my tutor and I started every question analysis. Okay, I had trouble on question 10. Okay, read the stem, read the stimulus, tell me the conclusion, identify the support and the context every single time. Uh, so we have a quick one here, Matt, Monty. Uh, did you take the PTs in order or did you skip around? Both. Um, I took the 40s in order because I had a long road to the June L set at that point. Um, that would have been like January, beginning of 2018. But as I got closer to the LSAT, I went more recent in the exams. So like a, a, maybe 40 through 49 was in a row. And then I knew I was a few months away. And so I'd take like something in the 70s. And then I, I, I'd go back to the 50s and then 70s and then 60s and then 80s. And then leading up to the test, only the most recent exams. Okay, Matt? Uh, Matt, you asked this uh, pretty long question. I'm going to try to not read it out loud. Let's see if I can get you to unmute. Yeah, I, I was just wondering about uh, when you were talking about the phase where you were recording yourself and you were shooting for uh, like minus five per LR section mm -hmm. uh, and you're reviewing that footage, did you have like uh, specific time goals for, for question types? Like I put the example of like a, like a, like a low time for like a main point question. Like, was that something you were looking for and then would use to decide, like, to hey, I need to drill that type of question? 
you know, that was something that I began to pay closer attention to once I was aiming for the upper 160s. And I think you're going to have to do that to break into the 170s. You know, you can't be spending as much time on a a main point question as you are a long parallel flaw question. But um, when I was just starting that early phase of videotaping and and looking to go minus five, um, I was really paying more attention to the major time sinks than, you know, if I did a main point question in 40 seconds. You know, I, I was focusing, I, w- I would spend three minutes on a question at some, sometimes at that point, you know, and so I was looking to stop the bleeding, right? And, and so the bleeding was occurring on that three minute question versus like the 15 seconds I spent too long on a main point. But then as, the, as I got better and there were no more three minute questions, I had to go look at the 15 seconds that I could save on the main point question. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Even there, it- the uh, economic principle of low-hanging fruit is operating, right? When you first look at yourself, take a, a test, the footage of it, you are going for the low-hanging fruit, which are the questions that you've spent on round one inexplicably inexplicably three minutes on. There are those questions. I mean, look, first of all, I'm going to bet like it's probably better than 50% chance that you get those questions wrong, right? Because it's the fact that you've spent three minutes tells me that that's a hard question. And hard questions tend to be correlated with lower accuracy. So that those three minutes doesn't guarantee a point. And then second, let's say you do get that point. Well, you you still lose, right? Because you way overpaid for that point. You know, how, how many points could you have picked up if you just like spend instead of um, 180 seconds, right? On that, that's three minutes, 180 seconds. You're like, you know what? I'm just going to spend about 40 seconds, miss this question. And then I'll have 140 seconds. You could probably pick up two other points with with that amount of time. So even if you get it right, you lose anyway. So that's the low-hanging fruit, right, once you recognize that. But then, as you said, once you get rid of all those, once you collect all the low-hanging fruit, well, there you just got nothing else to do except to shave 15 seconds off here, 10 seconds off there, right? And that's where just really fine analysis comes in. But um, it's a lot of work for uh, the gains aren't as big anymore. Yeah. That's where I started spending half an hour every day reviewing old questions and just practicing finding the structure of it, the pattern of it. Because if you can find the pattern of a question, um, you can find the right answer choice a lot faster. And that's where I got that speed on the main point and or not really main point, but some of the other easier questions. Yeah. Like every LSAT will have, it's not every, but like on average, you're going to find one sufficiency necessity confusion question uh, per LSAT, like on average. You're going to find at least one question where they just straight give you a correlation and they'll either directly say A is correlated with B, they'll directly conclude A causes B, or they'll assume A causes B and from there argue to a different causal conclusion. So those are the kind of like pretty quick, like, you know, I tend to, I call some of them like the oldest mistake in, in the book. In my explanations about how just it's it's just a you know it's like you're just stamping out you're stamping out questions with the oh, yeah. mold or you know Jill is taking this flight because it gets her there the fastest and she has to be there for a funeral can you weaken the argument well I'll tell you right now the answer choice that deals with the cost of that flight is not going to weaken that argument 
because that's not in the calculus. Yeah, so a big part of uh, cookie cutter review also is to identify the cookie cutterness of wrong answer choices. A lot of wrong answer choices are also stamped out of these molds that the outside writers know, like psychologically, people's minds. If you put them close enough to this territory, they'll just jump into this adjacent but non sequitur ter territory. So with that, they can reliably predict some some like sort of mistakes and reasoning and they'll use that to generate wrong answers so a lot of your cookie cutter review also comes in the form of recognizing how wrong answers are not unique right they're just repetitive as well um matt uh did we answer your question um yeah uh, i did I, I was the the part earlier where you were uh you were explaining a feature of the uh seven sage analytics where you were talking about how the like you said something about the raw score yes, stack yes, and yes. like yes I'll, I'll explain that again so it's just on your it's not analytics it's just on your dashboard so when you log in you, you, your default page is the dashboard page right so if you just kind of scroll down on your dashboard page you'll see where a little widget that just says lsas score conversion and there are three boxes that you get to select right so you, you can you know you can toggle the variable so that I just have a set that I want to get a 165 scaled score on 25 most recent prep tests. And then it just gives you a breakdown of like, what does that mean? How, how can you get a 165 scale score by looking at the data from the 25 most recent prep tests? So it just tells you that on average, you, you're missing 18.68 questions. Um, if you change that, like, let's toggle that down to like, maybe, maybe you're in the one, high 150s and you want to consistently score a 160, okay? So I just changed that number to 160. Now, again, limiting it to 25 most recent prep tests. Now the average goes to 27.12. You get to miss a full quarter of the questions, right? Every four questions, you get to miss one question. So that's great. I mean, you, you really need to take that into consideration when you're coming up with your strategy. Like minus 27 questions, how do you want to divide that up? If you just assume an even division between four sections of seven questions each, right? That means you get to miss seven questions on LR. That means as you're going through the LR section, you know, like you got to think about what, what Bart's saying about um, when, when a question is kind of difficult, you're reading the stimulus, you don't really understand. Well, hey, maybe this is one of your, you just like within 40 seconds, you're like, okay, you know what? I'm going to spend one of my seven missed questions on this question. So 40 seconds, done, moving on. I'm not going to answer it, right? So that's that's how you it's the tool this little widget is just a, a way to i mean you can find all this data yourself too right just with with the conversion data but it's just really easy um quick for you to to help you come up with a um s strategic plan of like how you're going to move through the questions oh, sorry the sections yeah that's that's very helpful i i keep i actually have bookmarked uh the seven sage page it's like a post about how you can calculate your LSAT scores. And there's like, there's like, and I keep going uh, to, to that thing, but I, I see this uh, on the dashboard and yeah, it'll do it faster for me. <laughs> That's right. That, that little widget is, you don't have to have a paid account or anything. Even with a free account, you can access that widget. You just gotta, you just gotta log in and then you'll see it on the, um, yeah. You, you can flip it the other way around too. You can like, you can be like, you, you know, you can be like, okay, I'm getting, uh, you know, I'm getting like 18 questions wrong. What does that translate into if I limit it to 25 most recent prep tests? Well, if you're getting 18 questions wrong on the most 25 recent prep tests, the average is 165.24, right? That's that's the score. So either way, either, either direction you want to use it is fine. Yeah, thank you. Sure, no problem. Okay, uh, 
want 180. <laughs> it's uh, interesting. Can you unmute yourself? Um, I looked at your spreadsheet uh, that's uploaded on the uh, on the forum, and then it seemed like the work you put in seemed enormous. And also considering that you were working, um, you were also working part-time, I think, or full-time maybe. So I was wondering how uh, much work you put in daily and how much in a week and at what pace. Because I also looked at the dates that you took your PTs and it seemed like you were taking almost every week. And um, considering that you also did video analysis, uh, get tutors or got tutors and gave tutorials, uh, it just seemed enormous, the work you put in. And how did you manage to do all that? I had a really patient, supportive girlfriend. Um, in all seriousness, yeah, it, it, it was a lot, man. Like I, I said at the beginning of the, of the webinar that um, I had been working in a, an actual full-time career, and then I left and traveled, and then I decided to go to law school, and then I started studying. And after my first take in December of 2016, that's when I started with Seven Sage following that. So in January of 2017. And at the same time, I started looking for work because, you know, I, I had been out for a year at that point and I didn't want to hit my savings anymore. I was lucky enough to find an online remote position with a startup based out of San Francisco doing hourly contract work for them. So I don't think I have a repeatable path in terms of that. I just got very lucky to find meaningful, well-paying work. And so I would work, I would wake up uh, every day, study for the LSAT for four to five hours, go work out, and then work for, you know, five to six hours in the evening. And so I was trying to get 30 hours of work in every week. It was tough. I mean, I took Sundays off. You know, that job was a blessing and a curse because on the one hand, it, it was flexible and decently paying so that I could, you know, live and study but it also kept me in the house. And so I, I had to schedule time to get out of the house because I was also studying in the house, right? And so made me a little bit of a hermit. So I made sure to schedule time outside of the house, whether it was, you know, exercising or hiking or just walking around town. And I also was very consistent in taking uh, Sunday off every day. And I also scheduled vacations for myself. So I only included one month of my schedule in that calendar and it's not exactly a representative month i'm not sure what's in there i really i think i shared it mostly for the you know the structure just to show like i think it's very important if you're going to be scheduled uh studying for a long time to be structured and methodical in how you're spending your time but you know every like six weeks or two months like i would take a few days off three four five six days off even and i would when i was in my pt cycle i, I aimed to take a pt every 10 days. And so the first day would be rewatching the whole test and filling out the timing sheet and then going through and BRing and then BRing with my tutor and then drilling. Um, and that would take me out. And then, you know, I'd have a day off at some point in there and that would take me into my next PT. But in accounts playables webinar, which is very old at this point, he speaks about treating the LSAT as a sport and I'm an athlete and so it rang true to me and that's what I did. You know, I cut out alcohol for a lot of this time. You know, occasionally I'd, I'd, you know, tear one loose, but for the most part, I wasn't drinking. 
Um, I was eating very, very healthy, healthier than I ever have in my life. Cut out a lot of sugar, a lot of, I don't know. I, I did what diet I felt kept my mind sharp, right? I'm not a dietitian, but I think we all can experiment and find what, what keeps us sharp. I developed a routine and I think a routine or an, a, a regimen can really help you persevere. You get more done. You just, you get a lot more done. And I think you can get it done consistently over a long period of time if you have a schedule and, and you stick to it. And it, you know, it, it meant that I had to make certain personal sacrifices. Um, but you know, that was all part of my long-term calculus. Great. Next, uh, Ashley, you had asked a couple of questions. Can you let's see if we can get you unmuted? Um, so I just wanted to ask, um, I've pretty much, I made a mistake while studying. I admit that I bulldozed through a lot of the recent exams. And by recent, I mean like prep test 60 through like 84 over the last several months. Um, so I just wanted to know what should I do from now to the actual test date in terms of taking practice exams. When did, did you say when you're aiming to take the test? When? Um, originally it was January, but I got my November LSAT score back, and now I think that's not a good decision. Um, so I'm just moving it until, I think earliest would be March. Okay. Have you BR'd those tests? No, I haven't. So I, but even if I did do that, I remember you saying that you couldn't rely on the scores for those tests because they were like retakes. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering what would I do aside from blind reviewing those tests to like taking fresh ones? Like, do I just go back to the old ones or like, I'm not sure what to do at this point? Well, I think that reviewing those old tests needs to be a part of your prep between now and your test date. You know, I'm happy to speak to you in more detail. I, I think your question may require more time than we can give on, on this call because it's going to include, you know, your section averages and timing for the next test and a weekly schedule and all the other prep tests that are available. But, you know, I'm happy to, you know, we can chat about it offline. Okay, yeah. Um, then I guess I'll just ask my... I guess, simpler question, how much did the Bibles and prep books help you? Because I feel like you didn't really mention them too much. So I was wondering if maybe they didn't help that much at all. Um, the Bibles didn't help me. Oh, I don't. I, and I bought them and okay. they seem like they help a lot of folks, but the approach in those didn't match my learning style. Um, and even the, even the, uh, the LSAT trainer, which I liked a lot, didn't like I needed something interactive. Um, and so I don't want to knock those systems. People have definitely benefited from them, but I think they serve best as a complement to something interactive like a seven sage, um, where you're actually answering questions and dealing with other live human beings who will push back against your reasoning, challenge you and, and, and vice versa. So, um, there is value in them, but, um, I think they're best used as a compliment. Mm, okay. All right. Because I just ordered the LSAT trainer. So now I'm a little nervous about that. Um, I, I use the LSAT trainer. I think they have some really uh, effective drilling drills for RC. I think they have some interesting strategies for logic games um, that are really effective in some cases. Um, I wouldn't call it a waste of money. I just wouldn't 
use I, I just wouldn't plan to use them as your sole source of studies. Okay. Actually, um, how would I be able to contact you after the webinar? Because I remember you saying that my other question was a little bit more complicated. It would take a while mm -hmm. longer to answer. Mm -hmm. It's um, not my name. I think four is my seven stage handle. You can just send me a DM on there. We can chat about it. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, then. Um, okay. I'll, I'll just do that then. Um, thank you for answering my questions. And please look out for a direct message because I'll definitely send you um, messages. I will. Don't worry. I'm not. I I'm not pushing you off by any means. Um, I just I want to give you a good answer to that, and I yeah, think okay. I yeah, can do I it better it. that way. Okay. Okay. I'll probably message you like sometime later on today or early tomorrow. Okay, that's great. I look forward okay. to it. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Ashley. Uh, we have probably time for one last question. If anyone wants to ask. I might have missed something if you typed your question earlier on. I wasn't paying attention to the chat. My bad. Um, well, um, I have a question. Uh, Bart, what are you doing nowadays? How are you filling this uh, void in your life that used to be the LSAT? It's, it's not easy at all. Um, it's like it feels like Shawshank when what's-his-name gets out of prison the guy with the bird. Um, but so I finished with the LSAT and then um, all my attention went into applications and all that that entails. I visited a bunch of schools. Um, now I'm writing letters of continued interest um, and I'm going to start taking, uh, I've always wanted to be an, an EMT, an emergency medical technician, ride an ambulance. And I never got around to doing it. And I doubt I'll be able to do it in 1L, but I'm going to start taking courses for it um, this spring. And maybe I'll get to do that part-time. And I'm also speaking to uh, a legal advo ad advocacy group um, nearby to uh, volunteer with them. Nice. That sounds awesome. That sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. Just, I got to stay busy, man. <laughs> and you're waiting to hear back from uh, all the schools that you apply to. I've been accepted to a few with uh, top 20s with substantial scholarship, and I've been waitlisted to uh, from two top 14s, uh, the only two I've heard back from. But um, I don't know. I'm, I think it's going to be a long cycle. I, I'm hoping there's going to be a lot of admits off the waitlist, so just uh, keeping my hopes up. Also, it's December. It's December. And listen, when I first started all this, I was hoping for a 160 and a scholarship. And I, I was, I got a full ride to a top 20 school that I would love to go to. So like I, it's relativity is such a weird thing. Like being disappointed about getting a wait list from a top school with that offer sitting on the back burner is just like, I want to slap myself for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is uh, a full ride is that's like, Two hundred thousand dollars, right? Or one hundred and eighty thousand dollars, something like that. It's amazing. My my gratitude to them for extending that to me. I mean, uh, it's just it's remarkable. I'm so thankful. Well, uh, that's a good note to end this webinar on. Um, we're all very grateful for you generously sharing your time with us and your story. And I'm sure uh, you've been an inspiration to at least some of the people here, just like how. Uh, you found inspiration with uh, accounts playable. Thanks again, Bart, and uh, I hope to see you online. Thanks, JY. If anyone has any questions that weren't answered, please post them in the forum 
post and I'll answer them there or feel free to direct message me, not my name for. Best of luck, everybody. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Last time, I asked for your help to reach 500 subscribers before the end of the year. And we did it. As of this recording on December 27th, we have over 530 subscribers. That is all I wanted for Christmas, so thank you everyone for your lovely present. We'll be back in the new year with new episodes. Happy Holidays!